Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, awakening, non-duality, hardcore dharma, strange new worlds, the science of meditation, and much, much more. I'm Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking once again with Andrew Holacek. Andrew Holacek has completed the traditional three-year Buddhist meditation retreat and offers seminars internationally on meditation, dream yoga, and the art of dying. He's the author of many books, including Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep, and a new book on reverse meditation. Andrew is masterful at joining the wisdom traditions of Asia with the knowledge of the West and holds degrees in classical music, biology, and a doctorate in dental surgery. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Reverse Meditation with Andrew Holacek. Andrew, welcome back once again to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Michael, it's such a delight. Always love hanging out with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, no, I really, really appreciate you being willing to come back on the show. I know you are an incredibly busy guy. So <laughs> I heard that you just launched some kind of new preparing for death program. Yeah, a program we've been working on for quite a few years, a three-month intensive preparing to die program, somewhat based on my bigger second book, Preparing to Die, this 400-page thing where we are as comprehensive as we can possibly be. It's how to help yourself and others before, during, and after death from a spiritual and practical perspective. That's like we cover all bases. And so I'm really, really excited about finally getting this thing up and running. And is that like a live program or is it? It's a kind of a hybrid thing. We have about 60 hours of pre-recorded lectures from events I've done all over the country for many, many years. And then we get together a number of times during the week. We have gatherings where also we interview guests. I interview guests live, and then the participants come on board and they're able to ask questions directly. And so it's a, a bit of both, pre-recorded stuff with transcripts and then kind of live events. And the really great thing, Michael, is it's kind of in perpetuity thing. It's, it's where even though the three-month event will finish for people, probably going to run it a couple times a year. And all participants will have access to all new interviews, all new offerings and that sort of thing. And it's a way to develop a sense of community so that when people enter end of life situations, they have support on all these different levels from this cohort that's been developed here. And so there are a number of factors that make this program somewhat unique. And that's one of them. It's one of the few things that will defy the laws of impermanence and death itself. <laughs> nice. I can't help but ask, does it include any eternal ground type material? Yes and no. I mean, we work a little bit with some of the stuff we may be talking about today, the reverse meditations, which are kind of channel grounded spirit. But because it's mostly an online thing, there's only so much we can do. Yeah. When I taught these things live, we would do things like take participants to anatomy labs and to crematoriums and to funeral homes and places like that. So people could quite literally spend time and become familiar with what it's like on the gritty side, the kind of charnel ground aspect of it. But a little bit harder to do that online, right? I haven't figured out a way to do that. So if you have some ideas. I definitely will. It's just such a important and fascinating part of it. And I knew that you would put it in there in whatever way you could. So Yeah, exactly. So you've got a new book out called Reverse Meditation. Yes, I do. Which is an unusual title or unusual concept, even though the style of meditation described in there, I'm very familiar with and teach and stuff. I've never heard it called reverse meditation. So I was like, oh, right away, this is really great. What a great title. But again, this is kind of in some ways not that unusual, but in other ways, actually quite unusual. So what was your inspiration for bringing out this book? Yeah. You know, the subtitle of it's probably worth mentioning, long-winded subtitle, How to Use Your Pain and Most Difficult Emotions as the Doorway to Inner Freedom. Yes. And so what inspired me, Michael, was really, I learned this practice in my three-year retreat some 25 years ago. And it was just for people who want to have some kind of context for this. It was in a really profound part of the retreat where we were working with nature of mind meditations, Mahamudra in the Sanskrit term. And I remember being so struck by this really small little section in these classic meditation texts that 
the first time I ever heard the word reverse meditation. And that particular practice was literally trying to create as many thoughts as you possibly could voluntarily. So you're sitting in meditation and it was like, oh, I finally get to do what I've always wanted to do. It's almost like flipping off my meditation. <laughs> I'm going to make my mind as wild and crazy as I possibly can. And that was actually the instruction to do that volitionally and to notice how in the center of this voluntary cyclone, there in fact could be the calm eye, the cultivation of a dispassionate witness awareness that's really quite powerful. And so when I left retreat, because as you know, when you do these long three-year retreats, traditional ones, it's like going to a meditation university. Yeah. And so, I mean, I have 50, 60 different types of practices and there's no way you can incorporate all that even in three years. And so I came out and I elected to pursue this set of practices in more detail, especially around my work with death and dying. And so then what I started doing, Mike, was, was extrapolating it to really difficult, painful situations. And I share some stories in the book about when I had kidney stones some 20 years ago, which, as you may know, are one of the most painful experiences you can have. I worked with this horrifically painful experience using these practices, and it was an absolute game changer for me. I mean, it really allowed me to relate to my hardship, my pain in, in a spiritual way. And, and we can get into the weeds about that and, and how that actually happens. And then I started extending it to other things, to tremendous emotional duress, to hardship and agony and pain and suffering and ending of a marriage and that sort of thing. And so when I started working with the deeper, presenting it in some of my seminars, I said, geez, this is somewhat helpful. And it's a little bit like MBSR on steroids, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction and the groundbreaking work of John Kabat-Zinn with his book, Full Catastrophe Living. It just takes it to a new level, I think. And so when I presented the idea to my publisher, oh my gosh, they were all over it. And so hence, you know, we gave birth to this book and it's largely just to reiterate, born from the confidence of me doing these practices for a couple of decades and just realizing, and again, I'm a retired dental surgeon, so I know a little bit about the pathophysiology of pain. In fact, I also engaged in studies at Richie Davidson's lab when they mm. were studying so-called advanced meditators and their ability to manage pain. So they stuck me in an fMRI and they did all these brain scans. And, and so I know a little bit about the full spectrum approach to working with pain. This is not just an ivory tower, intellectual, academic, or even spiritual treatise. This comes from being in the scientific community and being in the clinical work and in dealing with intense, I mean, as, as a dental surgeon, you know, boy, I dealt with a heap of hurt with my patients. And so that also gave me the confidence to say, well, maybe this can be a benefit to others because it sure as heck has helped me. Yeah. You know, I visited Richie's lab and he attached that black plastic box to my arm, the pain. Uh, oh, you know. Yeah. And it wasn't in the fMRI. They weren't studying me. They just wanted to show me, like, this is what this feels like. That hurts. <laughs> I was like, wow, that is not a small amount of pain. It feels like your arm is burning off if you were studied under those conditions. Not kidding around. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So imagine that, Michael, and then you're in an fMRI, you know, so you know how tight that is. And I've got a screen, you know, four inches in front of my face, and I've got all these other control things. It was a fantastic experience. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a day at the beach, but boy, was it interesting. And the data that came out, um, Antoine Lutz, I think, was the main author of this paper. The data that came out, and I report some of this in my book, is really pretty darn compelling that practitioners, meditators, actually have the capacity to decouple to prevent pain from turning into suffering because suffering is not the same as pain. I mean, suffering is an inappropriate relationship to pain. And, and so in the book, I share this little equation, which I think practically is more important than E equals MC squared. And it's, it's basically S equals P times R, which is suffering equals pain times resistance. And so the reverse meditations are about, in fact, going directly into the resistance, going into it instead of running away, reversing your strategies. And then with a little simple math, you drop the resistance, you're going to get rid of this thing called suffering. And then you're left with this thing called pain. And then you go even further and you go, okay, I love this in relationship to your podcast, Deconstructing Self. Well, let's deconstruct this thing called pain. What exactly is this thing called pain that we spend so much of our lives running from? And so by deconstructing the pain in the latter part of the book, the kind of the more advanced phase, I point out how it is that by deconstructing the pain, the experience, you deconstruct the experiencer. 
And that's where the pain really can become spiritual because not only pain, but also self are mutually deconstructed because they co-emerge, they lean on each other, right? You can't have experience without experiencer. And so if you really pull the legs out from underneath experience, everything then collapse into a kind of non-dual experiencer in the large big E kind of sense. And so to me, that was the big deal. So when I had my kidney stones, Michael, that's was the game changer for me because here I am, you know, wake up in the middle of the night, man, I am hurting. I immediately made the differential diagnosis and I said, whoa. So I said, okay, am I going to go to the ER in the middle of the night? They're not going to get a urologist in there till the morning. So I figured, no, I'm going to go downstairs. And I curled up in a little ball in front of my shrine and I practiced what I had been preaching. And I, I went through the four stages, which I'm happy to share with you. And fundamentally, I went all the way into the fourth stage where I dissolved into the pain and it was beyond profound. There was still something there. I didn't get rid of this sensation, but I absolutely positively got rid of my pain. There was something there that didn't necessarily feel good, but here's the kicker. It also didn't feel bad. It just felt really real, intense, luminous kind of reality experience. And that to me was like, whoa, there's something here. And that kind of started really launching the further exploration of these reverse practices. Yeah, it's so interesting that this pseudo-math formula that you just mentioned, I first heard it from my teacher Shinzen Young, oh, cool. who I think came up with it, maybe not. You know, years and years ago, decades ago, he was teaching that very often. And so we did a lot of this kind of meditation. And often in my own experience with really difficult stuff, you have terrible food poisoning or something where you're just in an agony and sick in a bunch of different ways, uh, like fever and nausea and cramps. And it's very, very effective. I'm shocked at how powerful it was when you start working with those techniques on your own pain. But something that impressed me even more is one of my students was someone who had such bad sciatica she had actually had a morphine pump surgically implanted in her body, you know, yep. to try to overcome this. And it wasn't really working. Yeah. And so over the course of a, a long period of time, it did take her a long time to learn. But we worked with these pain meditations and reverse meditations on the pain. And, you know, she was in such pain that she was highly motivated to practice, right? Yeah. And, and like 24 hours a day practicing. But she has no reason to pretend this is working, you know, and no religious reason to believe it's supposed to, nothing like that. This is just purely practical. Can I meditate on this pain that not even morphine can help with? And I have to say, she just kept coming back and coming back to learn more and more because it just kept working. Yeah, that's just it. I'm curious, Michael, if you can share, how did Shenzhen teach this guy these set of practices with you all? Did you actually work with like deliberately bringing on pain, I'm actually quite curious because not exactly a public domain practice. Right, um, right. I'm very curious how he implemented this in your own experience. Well, he's still around, and so he may be teaching it however he teaches it now. But years ago, he would usually give us a big warning, like, look, there's enough pain already available in life. <laughs> you know, you're already in enough emotional pain. Probably you don't need to create it on purpose. You're probably going to find enough physical pain. You don't have to create it on purpose. So he was not saying go generate pain. Right. But it was more like if you aren't already working with some kind of pain anyway, which most of you are if you're here in this meditation retreat, then you could try to do something like uncomfortable stress pose or something like that. Like just sit in a way that's uncomfortable on your ankle or whatever, not doing any damage at all, but just making it unpleasant. And so we'd work with things like that over and over and over again. And in fact, one of the programs I made with him years ago when I worked at Sounds True, I don't know if they even still put it out, but it was called Breakthrough Pain. Mm -hmm. And it went very deeply into these principles. It was a great audio program that had a little booklet with it and stuff that we made way back in the 90s. He's got a real teaching structure to this, and it was a big part of our meditation. And for him personally, I know he, he worked a lot, maybe not anymore, but in the past did things like 
actually go to Native American sun dances and do the full piercing where they tear your flesh off and stuff in order to work with these meditations more deeply. So he was really, really intrigued with this direction as a really powerful direction of awakening and also of just how to work with life, you know? So I think one of the great gifts of this practice is the inclusivity, the way it works with my favorite definition of meditation these days is is habituation to openness. Mm. And to me, it's like, yeah, mindfulness is great. All these other meditations are really, really awesome. But boy, where does your spirituality and your meditation go when the crap hits the fan or rubber hits the road, or like they say in Tibet, when rock meets bone? And so the way I riff with this a little bit is somewhat in the kind of alchemical tantric spirit where the greater the obstacle, the greater the opportunity. Sounds good on paper, but if you have the right skill set, if you have these methods, and like the, the person you were talking about who had the morphine drip, this stuff works. And the amazing thing for me, Michael, I'm curious to see how this worked for you, is I have also found in my own experience, and, and also when I have taught this stuff publicly, is that it tends to incorporate rather quickly that people can get the gist of it. It's really quite straightforward. It's simple. I wouldn't say easy because it's so kind of contrary to the way we relate to difficulties. But what I've noticed is that it tends to be embodied and therefore become applicable rather quickly. And and perhaps it has to do something with the intensity of the practice itself, that that somehow it really kind of gets downloaded more quickly than others. But I tell you, another instance of this is like creating intentional cacophonous situations. Like when I do this, sometimes what I do is I'll, I'll just blast people with advanced warning and we talk about it and how to work with it with really intense environmental stimulations like sound, like really intense, loud sound. And, you know, when you do that with a number of different untoward experiences, boy, it's amazing. I I hear a siren blasting by and and before I would just contract and cringe and all kinds of usual adverse reactions around it. But now instead of like, oh, crap, it's like, oh, open practice. And so therefore, like toothache, last year I had a series of medical issues I had to deal with, some of which were not particularly pleasant, including a five-hour surgery. Mm. And boy, I tell you, this practice was at my side from day one. And it was like, whoa, this stuff also was like, man, um, if it can help me, I'm no different than anybody else. If it can help me, it can help a whole lot of other people, I think. And so that's what inspired me to get it out there to help people realize there's so much more than basic mindfulness. The skill set, especially in the Tibetan tradition, which is where I learned this, one of the characteristics of that tradition are all these amazing different skillful means that we have at our disposal. And therefore, really, you can't, you know, in a certain way, enter a kind of lifetime retreat in the midst of your daily life where circumstances that previously seem to retard or obtund your spiritual practice now actually accelerate it. And so I, I write playfully in the book that by putting your meditation in reverse, you'll actually find yourself going forward because it just opens so much more of your life to the meditative and spiritual agenda, so to speak. And to me, that's no small thing. So I noticed reading the book that you go into the topic of contraction, and I just love this, and I thought it was really, really, really well done. And so could you just talk with us a little bit about how you're modeling contraction versus openness or constriction versus spaciousness in the book and just how really helpful that way of seeing things is? Well, I'm so glad to hear that because I think it's one of the stronger points as well. And so I riff in the book about how contraction and expansion are the combustion cycle of the path, right? And I really like the use of the word contraction because this is something we can feel. We know what it's like to contract psychologically, physically. And so what I do in the book is, you know, the principal form of resistance when I use my, this little silly equation, S equals P times R, Well, the principal form of resistance really is reducible to various degrees of contraction. And these contractions are all born from levels of self-defense. And on a biological level, these are extraordinarily important. If if we weren't able to contract away from difficult, painful situations biologically, you and I wouldn't be here talking about the nature of contraction, right? So we need to honor and incorporate the power of the contractive agenda, so to speak, for biological evolutionary purposes, 
But then what happens is it kind of usurps its domain, so to speak. And so what I do in the book is I start with what I call the super contractors. And these come in two forms. Like for instance, just to make it practical for listeners, think of instances when you're really angry. Think of instances when you're really afraid. Boy, I mean, these are highly contracting states of mind. And so what I do is I introduce the narrative of contraction through these kind of overt super contractors. And then what I do, and it's kind of not turtles all the way down in the Hindu mythology, it's contractions all the way down. And so what then I do is I progress through the book to more and more subtle levels of contraction. Contraction as it manifests in terms of distraction. I mean, every time we're distracted, we contract. Every time we're grasping after something, we contract. And so these are the omnipresent super contractors. And then I give a whole array of specific contractions that people can identify with, establish a relationship to. And then I provide all the antidotes for working with these. In other words, introducing a quality of openness and, and expansion. Again, someone in the narrative thing that I mentioned earlier, meditation as habituation to openness. But where it really gets cool, Michael, especially in the latter parts of the book, is when I take this all the way down to what I call the primordial contraction. Because if we can identify that, then we start to realize that all the other ones, the secondary, tertiary, quaternary contractions are all built upon this primordial contraction. And by becoming sensitized to the kind of feeling tone, the affective and, and physiological expression of contraction, you can work your way down to this extremely subtle primordial contraction. And I'll pause here for just a second to posit a question to our listeners here is like, okay, what might that primordial contraction actually feel like? Because this is of some importance. And so what I then point out is, well, the primordial contraction feels like me. It feels like the very sense of self. And so therefore I go all the way down to this kind of deeper spiritual level where self fundamentally equals contraction and self is, is a resistance to the expression of life. And so therefore all these practices of what I introduced in the book, open awareness, which is core preparatory practice to reverse meditations, then the reverse meditations themselves, they allow us to develop this capacity of radical acceptance. And then when you go all the way down to this primordial contraction and identify it as the very sense of me, the sense of I, again, then like in your podcast, hey, we can even open that primordial contraction and guess what? Therefore we can deconstruct the self. And so therefore this is so cool because self and other co-emerge, experience and experiencer co-emerge, well, you only have to kick out the legs from one to have the other collapse into each other, see? So you can either take pain apart that's the experience, that will, everything will then collapse into the experiencer, or you can go directly after the experiencer saying the same thing, then everything becomes experience. So one way or the other, kick the legs out from either aspect of this contraction. So I talk about how it is, you know, it's one contraction, two births, right? So <laughs> congratulations, ego, it's twins, right? This now goes really deep, Michael, because this is like, okay, all right, I can work with contraction at the level of physical pain, anger, fear, distraction, grasping all the ways every day in my life that I can track. But boy, now you can take these turtles all the way down and realize, oh my gosh, I'm contracting so constantly that this is what actually then generates the fundamental dis-ease, discord, suffering, which is duality. One contraction, two births. The mind is always squeezing constantly, and that's one reason we don't see it, creating the illusion of duality of self and other. And so now we go to the very last part of the book where then I take this notion of reverse meditation all the way to the fruition where you really can start to deconstruct reality, self and other, and rest in what the wisdoms proclaim is one synonym for the enlightened awakened state, which is in fact non-duality. Boy, this is a rich area. Yeah, something that I love about this way of talking about it is that it takes things out of the domain of abstraction and makes it directly experienceable in the same way that we could talk about emptiness as an idea, but we can experience it as spaciousness. Exactly. And that's very different. It's really hard. Emptiness is a very hard idea, but it's a really, really simple experience. 
of spaciousness. And in the same way, you can talk all day to someone about reification. It just doesn't mean anything, but the contraction of even grabbing onto something with the mind or even just feeling your muscles tighten, it's so obvious. Yeah. You can point at it and just be like, right there, that's it. Well, high five to you because that is spot on. And so, yes, every time we contract, we reify. You know, to reify means to solidify, to concretize, to make real. And we do it with such constancy, that's what actually masks it. It's like looking at the inside of your eyelid. It's so constant that we don't actually see that we're constantly reifying. And so this means if we're constantly reifying, constructing, I write in the book that ego is really the world's fastest and most efficient construction company, right? (laughs) The minute you open your eyes, perception is a construct, suffering is a construct, pain is a construct, self is a construct. And so if you understand your role, conscious or not, most of these processes are unconscious, well, then you can engage in the process of de-reification. Again, the process of openness. And in fact, I think like what you say beautifully, Michael, it's like, I don't know. And when I first write about the teachings on emptiness, arguably the core teachings of, of all of Buddhism, it's like, I don't know what it means to feel empty but I sure know what it feels like to feel open, yep. to feel free. Yep. And so to me, it's like, well, it's just like you're saying, now I've got some real world traction for some of these concepts that are otherwise kind of vague, abstract, opaque. And yeah, they're nice sound bites and jargon, but how do they apply to my life? And so by understanding this combustion cycle, you can get down to these extremely refined states of perception that I guide people through with meditations in the book, where you actually realize that in a very powerful way, Michael, our awareness is always pulsating. It opens, makes contact with reality to greater or lesser degrees, just enough to allow us to function. And then in lightning fast fashion, and I point out in the book just how fast this takes place, then that experience is immediately contracted, referred back to a sense of self. Well, what I show, and again, in line with your podcast here, is it's really not contraction back to self. It's fundamentally a contraction onto nothing but space itself, space awareness. It's the contraction itself that creates the illusion that there is a self, and then by immediate implication, other, because they co-emerge. And so therefore, again, as we venture back into the deep end of the pool, this now has really profound practical power and spiritual power, where you realize, hey, holy moly, Um, you know, sense of ahamkara, right? Eye-making. I am always contracting, creating the sense of self. I'm always projecting the sense of other. And then by bringing these processes into the light of consciousness, well, then now at least we have a choice. We can relate to them instead of from them and establish a more sane and healthy relationship to these processes. And then, of course, that's the seed of liberation. You know, then we start to realize that if you want to blame someone for your agony or your ecstasy, look in the mirror. You can't dole these experiences out onto somebody else, but they're fundamentally constructs from your end. And so it's a highly empowering set of teachings, um, what I playfully refer to as a peaceful transfer of power back from the phenomenal world to the self, the alleged sense of self that creates all this stuff so constantly. And this has tremendous resonance with what happens in the neurosciences and cognitive science and even physics, this amazing power, this prowess that we have that we're not aware of. And so if we realize that, boy, that's, again, no small thing. So, Andrew, we're going on and on about reverse meditation, and I think we both have a pretty good sense of what that is, but maybe people have no idea what we're talking about. So why don't you unpack that a bit for us? Okay. Yeah, so this is my unfolding of what I was introduced to in the meditation text, which as you may know, some of these texts are so pithy. They really don't give you a whole lot to work with. And maybe that's because they trust practitioner to make the discoveries and insights for themselves, who knows? So I unfold the practice of reverse meditation through these four steps. And I think that's important because we have such a nature nurture aversion to suffering and to pain and to hardship. There's just a tsunami of habit patterns of karma, whatever you want to call it, that basically kicks in at almost instinct survival levels that just say, you want me to do what? 
you're asking me to go into my pain? Are you crazy? And so when I tell people dip their toes into this ice cold water, so to speak, to acclimatize to these temperatures, the first step is you observe the pain or whatever it is. Let's just take physical pain. It can be any phenomena, but let's just take inevitable lifetime partner that we append the label pain to. And so the first step is to temporarily differentiate, not dissociate. That's the near enemy of differentiation. Temporarily differentiate from the sensation, from the pain, to get a better bead on it, to stand apart from it a little bit, develop this witnessing capacity that I was alluding to earlier with the center of the voluntary cyclone thing. And basically just, okay, let's just observe this thing called pain. Right there, that starts to change your relationship to it. It increases a sense of perspective, a sense of lucidity using that language, and therefore can help us relate to the untoward experience in a new light. And with each of these steps, I say, hey, if this works for you, and this is as far as you want to go, fantastic, stop here. You don't have to go any further. But for those who are more interested, then second step is you pull this kind of U-turn. You go alongside, instead of distancing yourself from the pain temporarily, you come alongside it. You be with the pain. I learned this one from Sogni Rinpoche, which I think is pretty cool. It's the analogy of two boxers that I'm sure you've seen these in the fighting ring. You know, if two fighters are six feet or so away, hey, man, they can throw a major wallop and knock their opponent out. But you notice what happens every once in a while. They, they're all tangled up next to each other. They're in the ropes. And the very best thing they can do are these kind of baby taps to the rib kind of thing, right? And so this is a little bit like that. You get really close. You get more intimate to the pain and you start to just spend some time with it. You know, it's just like, let's just hang with this thing. This provides a really wonderful, necessary segue to the third step, which is you start to examine it. So first step, observe. Second step, be with it, spend time with it. Relate to it instead of from it, because relating from it is no relationship whatsoever. Relating to it, that's a new relationship. So that allows us then to enter the third phase, you examine it. And this is an interesting phase because it's not merely a kind of cognitive intellectual examination. It's also a somatic examination. So this is where step two comes in. So you're close to the pain, you're next to it, so to speak, and you start to explore, literally asking questions like, what is this thing called pain? Where does it come from? Where do I feel it? Therefore, in so doing, you're actually starting to take it apart. You're starting to deconstruct it through the process of analysis. And so scholars, academic scientists types, they really groove on this because then they can bring that lens. And also body workers really groove on this because they can bring in the kind of somatic investigation. You know, so it invites a quality of interoception where you're starting to look and feel into this thing. And then really the summit question that leads into the segue to the fourth step, the final kind of summit question in the queries is, who is feeling this pain? So it's not just what is this pain, but you progress through that and some other sub-questions to arrive at the penultimate question, who is experiencing this pain? That's a really interesting examination. And so again, it works with both faces like I was talking about earlier. You, you look either really very closely at the experience itself, or you look very closely at the experiencer. Either way, you're going to kick the legs out from both of those. And so then these three, so observe it, be with it, examine it. Fourth step is when it becomes spiritual, you unite with it or yoke with it. And so this creates the acronym then, OBEY. Observe, be with, examine, yoke. And so the last phase is where it becomes non-dual. And the way it differs from phase two or step two, which is be with it. Step two, you're being with it. Step four, you're being it. So you'll literally allow yourself armed with a skill set. And again, you can stop at any one of these phases. It's like, whoa, the examination phase, this really works for me. Stop there. But if you want to go to the full-blown spiritual end of this, the last step is you do the plunge. You go directly into it. And here's this amazing statement from Trungpa Rinpoche, a little bit of an adaptation. So I'm extrapolating what he said, where fundamentally, if you become one with your pain, there's no one to hurt. You're just left with this deconstructed, intense, raw, sensory awareness, hard stop. That's it. 
To which then, because of enculturation and all the habit patterns, we append all the histories and the storylines and all the narrative things that create the sense of self experiencing the pain and also reifies the pain itself. So the four step is amazing. It's also like what T.S. Eliot said, you know, music, I love this line, music heard so deeply that you become the music while the music lasts. This one's not that easy to fully convey because you do actually have to experience this. But armed with the preparatory practices and the three preliminary stages, you finally take the plunge because you've kind of titrated it, you virtue in it, graduated fashion. And then finally, you just surrender, you give in to the experience altogether. And then it becomes completely non-dual. The experience dissolves into the experiencer. The experiencer dissolves into the experience, whatever you want to call it. Both self and other are deconstructed. And then you're left with this incredibly ineffable, exquisite, indescribable, intense sensory awareness. That's all it is. Boy, when you have that experience, that's really quite something. And so the image I share here, and then I'll pause for a second, is one of the most haunting images. I have it in my study. You may have seen it. Most people have. The photograph that JFK said, this is one of the most impactful photographs ever taken in history, of the Vietnamese monk, you Taekwon Duc, who self-immolated in protests of religious persecution during the Vietnam War. Oh, yeah. Right? This unbelievable picture of this man, this monk, sitting in complete meditative equipoise, right? While his body is literally going up in flames. And, you know, for years I said, how is this humanly possible? How can somebody sit in such an intense, horrific environmental experience and not move, not flinch? And then I realized, oh my gosh, it's because fire cannot burn space. And so who knows? I mean, I'm conjecturing. Who knows where this incredible monk went with his mind? But perhaps he was doing something like what the reverse meditations are, where, again, armed with the preparatory practice even preceding the reverse meditations, I intimated it earlier, the practice of open awareness. When you learn how to mix your mind with space awareness in this regard, I mean, space has some amazing qualities, right? On one level, it's the softest thing in the world. I mean, raise your hand right now and move it through space. Is there anything softer in space? No. But at the same time, is there anything more indestructible? You can't bomb it. You can't burn it. You can't cut it. And so with the preparatory practice of open awareness, then armed with the four stages, you learn how to, so to speak, mix your mind with space awareness. This then cultivates what I playfully talk about is this industrial strength quality of mind, this industrial strength meditation, where your heart and mind, Michael, are big enough to say yes to everything, to accommodate everything. That doesn't mean you naively acquiesce. And so a near, you know, one thing I want to say right at the outset, hey, if I'm still in a heap of herb, um, I'm still going to go see my doctor, right? <laughs> you know, I had some surgery done. I'm still going to be put under, right? There's definitely a place for an integral approach to this type of thing. So I'm not saying you have to put all your eggs in this kind of psycho-spiritual basket. What I am saying is take a very close look at these experiences and realize like Norman Cousins says, you know, the greatest pharmacy is between your ears. I mean, the capacity of the mind to work with these experiences, physical, psychological, emotional, is really untapped. And so briefly, in a nutshell, those are the four stages and might give listeners enough to, to give this stuff a whirl. Pretty straightforward on that level. It's just getting familiar with it, spending time with it, and realizing the vast applicability and practicality. When you work with students directly, what do you find is the most common place they get off track here? Oh, good question, Michael. You know, I've had so many uh, different experiences with people that I've worked with. It really depends on the level of maturity of the practitioner. And so, as you might suspect, at the outset, for people who don't have a lot of familiarity with their minds and also with their bodies, right, just the conditioning just the cultural conditioning around this. Again, in my languaging, like, you want me to do what, <laughs> right? Yeah. That is one. And then later, for more mature practitioners, so to speak, it's, again, just developing the confidence and, and the trust that you can actually go into these experiences so deeply. This, this reminds me, I want to throw this in before I forget, another amazing statement from the master of the one-liner, you know, the radical Trumper Mache, where he says something that just blew me away in his legendary introduction to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. 
this amazing statement, Michael, where he says, you know, the absolute experience of duality is the experience of non-duality. That's an amazing thing to say. And so these practices really invite that radical proclamation into our experience. And so for people that have a little bit more maturity in practice, some of the sticky points come towards taking that full plunge at the very end and just being willing to just you know, completely surrender this radical acceptance, radical equanimity to whatever arises. And again, that's why the experience is titrated. That's why in the book, I don't know how many pages, you know, in a, in a 180 page book, it's probably 150 pages before we get to the reverse meditations because there's just so much cultural, societal, biological, phenomenological resistance to this that the preparatory work around this is somewhat important because otherwise, like I mentioned earlier, survival level instincts come into play and boy, they're just going to kick you right out of these practices. But like you said, with your friend who had this intractable pain, people that are really dealing with a lot, they're the ones also that are willing to explore this in somewhat desperate modalities. And then very often, somewhat akin to what you were sharing, they're pleasantly surprised in terms of, wow, I had no idea I had the capacity to relate to these difficult experiences in these ways. So I'm circumambulating your question because it's difficult to throw a dart at exactly the central pole of what the sticking points are, but something like that. Yeah, thank you. I was just curious about exactly what you responded to, like some of the main things that come up. And with regard to that last step, it seems like it goes almost back to biological or even existential, where there's a sense of like, if I really let go like that, the pain is just going to take over. There'll be nothing but pain, and it will just get huge. And you see there's a kind of an odd, almost physiological logic of if you tighten around the pain, you're going to keep it contained or something. Right. And contract all around it. It keeps it in a box. And if I let go of that contraction, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, which isn't the case, right? It does at first seem to grow, but you quickly realize it's like the more you let go, that doesn't happen. And so that last really letting go seems like it's related. Would you, do you think it's directly related or somewhat related to the contraction question? Absolutely. It's interesting, you know, briefly tying it into the death and dying teachings and the bardos. You know, the first death bardo is literally called the painful bardo of dying. Really, it's, it's the painful bardo of opening. And why is it painful? For exactly this reason. It's painful to open. It's painful to let go to this degree. And so what you said is actually true and revelatory that, yes, on one level, the experience will consume you. But that's part of the point. It will consume your ego. It will completely overwhelm the ego narrative structure. And then what you're left with is, this is the part that's difficult to put into words, you're left with this ineffable experience of just reality, complete, unmediated, raw, intense sensory awareness, which is fundamentally all there is anyway. So for sure, the inability to let go to that level, to release into it, simply because of the extraordinary level of conditioning biological is built into our nervous system fundamentally, that when you're feeling something physically challenging, you contract away, right? So this again is also helpful to keep in mind because it creates or invites a quality of Maitri kindness. And, and some people say, well, what I write in the book is that this is one of the kindest things you can ever do is relate to pain in this way. And people go, are you kidding me? I mean, how can this be kind to yourself to do this? Well, because the kindest thing you can do for yourself is speak and live the truth. And if you're working with really difficult states of mind, the ability to relate to those things fully, completely, it's a little bit like Suzuki Roshi says so beautifully in his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, you know, that you shouldn't be a smoky bonfire, right? You should be a good bonfire. And so in a very practical level, my languaging, what I talk a little bit about is this really rich notion of you're invited to cremate your experience as you live it. In other words, don't live your life on a pilot light level. Don't be a smoky bonfire. Cremate your experience as you live it. And boy, that's easier said than done. But if you have the skill sets at your disposal, the practice of open awareness, the reverse meditations, now you can actually do that. And so what it does is it really turns life 
from a pilot light level, now the gas is really on, so to speak. You're living a life much more fully. You're no longer afraid. It's like what we were talking about earlier, the deepest levels, like it says in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, over and over in the latter sections of that book, what do they say? Emptiness cannot harm emptiness. And so this is where this practice will take you to this fundamental kind of fearless relationship to life experiences that you develop this simultaneously soft like space and indestructible like space quality to whatever arises is radical acceptance. And therefore, boy, does this change things. You know, you're in a heap of hurt. Well, where in the life contract does it say that life is supposed to feel good? <laughs> and this is where people really get along. Like Alma says about the spiritual path, I love it. When people set out on the spiritual path, they're unwittingly setting out for heaven. People want out. Well, again, what did Trungpa Rinpoche say so beautifully? There is no way out. The magic is to discover that there's a way in. So I love this to dovetail it in to what we were talking about earlier. It allows us to just bring so much more of life experience onto the path and it allows us to live more fully and fearlessly and the capacity and the willingness not only to be with our own hardship, but then by immediate extension, the ability to be with others when they're in pain. And so by establishing a relationship to your own difficult physical, psychological, spiritual states of mind, boy, then you have the capacity to be alongside those who are sick, who are dying, who are really hurting, because you have this inner confidence, this, this kind of silent stability born from engaging with these sorts of things. And therefore, from that space, you can be of tremendous benefit for those around you. And I've discovered this because you know I do write and teach and spend time working with death and dying. I'm, I'm often consulting people who are in the final stages of life. And so the practices also have taken me all the way to this you know, almost penultimate life experience where you can take these practices and apply them to arguably the most untoward, unwanted, difficult experiences in all of life, which is the end of it. So then, boy, now you have an entirely extra dimension of applicability to be a benefit to yourself and others going through these sorts of things. That's so beautiful, Andrew, and of course, incredibly helpful and important. So thank you for sharing that. And also just for you know, your generosity in coming on the show today and talking about this, not only book, but just, I don't know, I think deeply powerful and helpful view on how to meditate. Yeah, how to expand our meditations. Again, in this day and age, boy, right? Look up, there's no shortage of grist for this mill. We are living in a dark age, the Kali Yuga, where just open your eyes. There's so much difficulty in the world today. And so whatever skill set we can bring from whatever spectrum of the human condition to help us work with these really difficult states of mind, not getting rid of them, but relating to them in a new way, and then stepping in to the fray, stepping into the difficult aspects of what's happening culturally, socially in the world today. This is another skill set that I think can really be of some benefit. Amen, brother. <laughs> All right. As I said, thanks for coming on the show. And I hope I can get you on here again sometime soon. It's just such a pleasure to talk with you, Andrew. Michael, anytime. I really enjoy it. The depth, the subtlety, the nuance of your questions and comments are always so, so rich to me. So it's always a delight to spend time with you, my friend. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. 
There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>